my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and uh, part of our preaching team. And I haven't been gone as long as Reese, but I've been gone a couple weeks. And it's great to see you again and to uh, dig into this passage in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I hope that you haven't put your copy of God's Word away. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter today, but it's a long one. And so I didn't want her to read the whole thing for us, uh, but we will work through it. And uh, what this passage really does is kind of tell the story, it recounts the story of the people of Israel. And, and I don't know about what you've noticed, but, but in culture, it just seems like there's origin stories everywhere, right? These are our favorite superhero movies. Um, we always kind of want to know the background and different things. And I find even like with my kids, my kids, I've got four kids, uh, been married to my wife almost 20 years, and our kids love our family's origin stories, they love hearing about how mom and dad met and how we got engaged and how we fell in love and how we moved out here. And they kind of love hearing all those stories. Now, there's certain parts of those stories they don't ever get to hear about because those aren't the fun stories. You know, they don't always hear that. And what I love about this particular passage, what I love about the, the Bible as a whole is that the, the, the family of God, our origin story is just no holds barred. Everything's open. It's not just the highlights. It's not just the stuff that they've carefully curated in order to make it look good. It's like the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. It's actually one of the reasons that I trust the scriptures is because of how honest the scriptures are. I feel like if someone was trying to make something up in order to just help you feel good about it, it would be like following everyone on Instagram, right? That's everyone's best day. And apparently no one ever has bad days on there. I mean, it's just incredible how that works. Um, but that's not what the Bible's like. The Bible is honest. The Bible is, is, uh, is real. The Bible's gritty. The Bible's real, especially about disappointment. And I think that the Bible is honest about our sin because the gospel offers real hope for sinners. Are you a sinner today? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but every hand should go up. If I did, you're a sinner and I am too. And so I need real hope because if there's truly a holy God and I have truly rebelled against him, my only hope is that he would somehow show me grace. And the Bible's honest about our sin and then honest about that opportunity for grace. And so today's sermon is called The Confession. We've been looking at this book of Nehemiah. We've been looking at how God led the, the leader, Nehemiah, to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem after the exile. And how as he's doing that, what he's doing is not just trying to rebuild the walls around the city, but they're trying to rebuild the people. They're trying to rebuild the people into a faithful people, into a people that honor God and love God and enjoy God. And that's what it feels like uh, our church is kind of in a season in, right? After this last year and all the disruptions that happened over the last year and all the on again, off again, da, 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 there's a sense in which we're all in our lives and in our, and in our church, we're in a kind of rebuilding. And yet the rebuilding is not about the kind of forms and structures. It's about trying to rebuild us. How do we be faithful as the people of God? How do we honor God? How do we experience God in a powerful way? And so this week and next week are really kind of describing in the book of Nehemiah this kind of rededication moment. It's this moment where the people of God are saying, God, we're, we're all in with you. We're going to follow you all the way. And it begins in chapter 9 with a confession. This, this, this chapter is mostly, as it describes in verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse two, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's what this passage is. So here's the big idea today. Kind of the overarching principle is that deep renewal requires 
honest confession. Deep renewal requires honest confession. If you really want God to renew you, if really you want God to stir something in you, if really you want God to answer the prayers that you prayed just a moment ago for revival in your own heart and in your own family, it begins with honest confession. And confession is not important because God doesn't know, right? You're not going to tell him stuff that he's like, you did what? I had no idea. What he wonders is if you know. And not even if you know, but if you're humble enough to admit that you need him. Deep renewal requires honest confession. I think actually one of the signs of Christian maturity is an increasing willingness to confess your sins. Because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we become Christians, we do it by admitting that we're sinners, right? The, the kind of ABCs, admit that you're a sinner. Believe, confess in Jesus, right? The, the first one is admit. And so we become followers of Jesus by admitting that we don't have it all together. And not just that we don't have it together, but that we are actually sinful. That we're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. And what's interesting is we, we come to faith that way, but then we sort of imagine that the way we grow in faith is by pretending we aren't sinners anymore. And the opposite is true. The more mature you are, the more godly you are, the quicker you are to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy. The quicker you are to go to someone else and say, man, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? But it's a tough thing to say. We, we do this in our family um, where when someone is wrong about something, they have to say out loud, I was wrong, uh, including mom and dad, right? And so there's plenty of times where Hank's like, dad, say it, say it. You got to say it. I'm like, buddy, that's not the point of this, but you're right. I was wrong. And, and the reason is because there's just something in us that it's like, I don't want to admit it. I don't want to confess it. I don't want it to be out in the light. And yet the truth of the gospel is that God is eager to forgive us. We totally misunderstand the heart of God. We imagine that God is like the wait till your father gets home, God. And so you're hiding and you don't want to tell him anything and you're just going to try to whitewash it and make it look as good as you can. That's not God. You know what God's like? God is like the father who's, this is what one of my friends, Danae, she used this example. I thought this is so, that's exactly what God's like. God is like the father sitting at the, on the child's bed and the child is hiding under the blanket, scared to come out. And the father's just sitting there with a little smile on his face. Go on. I'm going to welcome you, buddy. That's what God is. So there's freedom in confession. And that's where revival and renewal really begin. So here's what I want to do. I want to just kind of briefly overview this whole chapter, tell you kind of what's in here. And then I want to help us see that God is way better than we think and that we're actually way worse than we think. <laughs> So uh, Nehemiah chapter nine, uh, where we left off last week is the end of chapter eight is the people of Israel, as they've been reading God's word, they've kind of had this rediscovery of the Bible. And as they do so, they discover, oh, wow, there's this incredible thing we should be celebrating called the Feast of Booths. And so they're celebrating that in the end of chapter eight. And right after that big celebration, uh, they, they kind of wait a day and then they begin uh, this process of confessing their sin. Look at verse one. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled 
with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, that tells you something. That tells you that the purpose of this assembly, the purpose of this gathering is confession. It is repentance, right? You didn't just happen to put on sackcloth that day. Right? This is like when you go to a funeral, right? You go to a funeral and you have to think through, what am I going to wear? And oftentimes you go, I'm going to choose to wear black as a picture of that I'm mourning, right? That's what they're doing. So they intentionally got up that day. They'd been fasting, sackcloth, dirt on their heads as a kind of picture of I'm, I'm, I'm down in the dirt. I'm lowering myself. It says verse two, something kind of interesting. It says, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's interesting. Why did they do that? Separated themselves from the foreigners. Right, if you read the whole Bible, you realize that, that the people of God are to be this light to the nations, that the nations should be flocking to the people of God and saying, wow, surely there's no God in the world like your God. Tell us about him. But in this moment, this is a gathering for the people of Israel. Why? Because they're doing in-house business. They have been tempted by the other nations, right? The, this picture of having no foreigners is having no idol worshipers, having no people that are drawing them after foreign gods. And so they're there, and this is what's interesting. They're not talking about confessing the sins out there. They're talking about confessing the sins in here. Here's what I've found in my many years now of preaching. Y'all love it when I talk about the sins out there. You like it less when we talk about the sins in here. And you know what? Me too. I'd rather lob bombs at the culture. But that's not what this gathering is. This gathering is saying this is in us. This is in our house. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord, the Bible says. And so this is an intentional thing to say, we're, we're, we're going to humble ourselves. We're going to confess our sin. We're not going to confess their sin. We're going to confess our sin. And notice how long it is. <laughs> As she was reading this, Reese was next to me. And when, when she read verse, uh, verse 3, he was like, holy cow. Verse 3, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, you got to understand, the day was just the 12 hours of the day, right? It wasn't the 24-hour thing. That's how. The, so still, how long was this service? Class? Six hours! Some of you are like, man, these services are too long. I just need to catch it online. You would struggle with a six-hour service, right? Some of you are like, man, I was so excited to serve in kids' ministry until they announced it was a six-hour service, <laughs> right? Like, imagine if you're like, hey, next week, our new service time, 6 and 3 p.m., right? <laughs> I mean, this is just incredible. It's, it's a long thing. And, it's, and I think this is significant in verse 3. The first quarter of it is hearing from the word of the Lord. The second quarter of it is worshiping and confessing. They let God have the first word. And in light of God's word and in light of God's holiness and in, God, in light of God's blessing, in light of God's covenant promise, it leads God's people to humble ourselves and to repent. 
Then they begin to pray. And in the first few verses, in verses five and six, uh, they begin by blessing God. They're just praising God. They're adoring God. They're enjoying God. And then they begin to recount the origin story, the history of the people of Israel. In verses seven and eight, they talk about Abram, that Abram was chosen and God changed his name to Abraham, that he became the father of their people, that God made his covenant with Abraham and was faithful to it. In verses, uh, in the following verses, then it talks about how God was faithful to the people of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand and he saves them from Egypt. But then they wander in the desert because they begin to disobey and they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. But still, God is faithful. Verses 22 to 31, it recounts how God let them enter into this promised land. And God gave them that possession. And God gave them that land. And God uh, was with them. And God was for them, even while they were continuing to struggle to obey. And then at the end, verses 32 to 37, you see that they're saying, God, even though we've been faithless, you've been faithful. Would you be faithful to us? Again, would you be gracious to us again? God, we need you. That's what chapter nine is. They're confessing. The the, the word confess, by the way, in the Bible, it doesn't mean telling God something he doesn't know. It means agreeing with God about the way things are. And therefore, they're agreeing with God, tells God some amazing things about who he is, because that's who he really is, and some troubling things about who they are. And that's what we're going to look at in the rest of our time here together. So first, let's start with the the, the place they start, which is that God is way better than we think. God is way better than we think. We think about God in kind of general terms. Yes, God loves us, and yes, God made things. And but but what I love about this chapter is that this chapter is sort of overflowing with the description of the ways that God is better than we think. We're actually going to fill up a whole screen here. It's going to look super busy and super cluttered, and that's on purpose because you're going to see, wow, God is better than I thought. In verse six, it says that God is the one true God. You are the Lord, it says, verse 6, you alone. It says that the Lord is, that God is the Lord of heaven and earth and everything. He says, you've made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. In the rest of this passage, what we're going to see is that God is the God who acts in history. This is significant. God does not act and reveal himself in ideas in philosophies, in esoteric truths, God reveals himself in history, in real events that happened on this planet. That's significant because if if God was just revealing himself in truths and ideas, then the whole idea would be we've got to get away and we've got to escape this world and we've got to somehow try to understand what the truth is out there. That's not the way God reveals himself. He acts in history. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and everything. Uh, one uh, pastor I heard once say, say this, I, I thought this was a great line. He said, the most offensive thing I believe is Genesis 1-1 and everything it implies. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was his first act in history. And if that's true, then everything it implies is offensive to a world that doesn't want a God who made everything. But God is still 
nonetheless faithful. Here's the next thing. He makes and keeps his covenant. It says in verse 8, it says, you made with Abram the covenant. At the end of verse 8, you've kept your promise for you are righteous. In verse 9, we, we see that it, he sees the affliction of his people. It says in verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Aren't you glad today that God sees you in your affliction, that God hears you in your cry? He is not off. He is not distant. He has not fallen asleep. He is not using the restroom. He is seeing you and hearing you. God's better than we think. God rescues his people, it tells us in verse 11. In verse 11, it talks about how he divided the sea so that the people of Israel went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. In verses 13 and 14, it says that he revealed himself and his ways. It says he came down and he spoke with them and he gave them right rules and he made known to them. Think about this. We would not know God at all if God hadn't made himself known. Just the fact that God makes himself known is God's grace to us. That's how good he is. He also uh, provides for their physical needs in verse 15. You gave them bread. You brought water for them. It says in verse 17, this is maybe the, the most significant verse in verse 17, is verse 17, look at this, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This is, what God, this is how God described himself when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said, well, who are you? He says, I'm the Lord. I'm gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I, don't, I haven't been with you this week, but I've been with me. I'm not slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'm more like Frank Costanza, the guy who wanted to celebrate Festivus, if any of you are Seinfeld fans of that old show. And Festivus, the, the way Festivus is, is instead of a Christmas tree, there's just a pole, and you have dinner with your family, and dinner begins with the airing of grievances. And Frank would stand up, and he'd say, I got a lot of problems with you people. Right? That's what I'm like, naturally. I got a lot of problems with you people. I look at my phone and I watch news and I see things and I just think, I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> I look, I sometimes walk in the house and see shoes everywhere and water everywhere and mess everywhere, despite how hard my wife works. And boy, does she work hard. And I think, I got a lot of problems with you people, right? <laughs> this is not the Lord though. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he doesn't forsake us. Look at what else he does. Verse 22 through 25, he gives land, he gives power, he gives provision. He is the one that gives the physical, tangible blessings that we experience. He gave them kingdoms, verse 22. Verse 24, he, they possessed the land. He's this God who repeatedly forgives. Look at verse 28 at the end. It says, yet when they turned and cried and heard, cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. God repeatedly forgives. He doesn't just forgive once. He forgives over and over and over again. He doesn't just forgive us of our sin, but he warns us against potential sin. In verse 30, he says, you many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. He patiently warns us. 
He is great and mighty and awesome, verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. That's who God is. And he deals with his people righteously and faithfully, it says in verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. They're saying, even when we kept sinning and even when you eventually disciplined us, God, you were righteous to discipline us. You were just to discipline us. We deserved to go to exile. Look at this busy screen filled with Goodness of God. God is way better than we think. We kind of imagine God in this sort of just two-dimensional, yeah, I guess he's good. I guess he loves us. He's way better than we think. And that's important because we are way worse than we think. This is a confession, not just about God's faithfulness, but about our sin. And I was struck as I read and studied this prayer that they don't just kind of blandly say, God, we're sinners. But they, they use nine different descriptions. Nine different descriptions of sin, of wickedness, of evil. The first one that we see is that they are just repeatedly unfaithful. When you just read this story, you just see, God, you were good, we weren't. God, you were great, we ignored you. God, you showed us mercy, we took advantage of it. That is what we are as the people of God. Again, we're not talking about people out there. We're talking about us in here. How many times have you been in a pickle and you said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything. I'll obey you. I'll listen. I'll follow you. God, just, just get me out of this. And then how long was it before you were back in that pickle? Maybe you could relate to, to this video. Maybe you're like that sheep. God, get me out. God, help me. Oh, I'm free. <laughs> I mean, how great is that? Right? Like, I mean, this sheep does not like stumble into the crack. He launches, right? And that's what, exactly what we're like. Woo! <laughs> Right, that, that's what we are, right? We are repeatedly unfaithful. God is pulling us out. God is rescuing us. And as soon as we're out, we're out to go defy him again. That's the people of Israel. That's us. Now, when I watch that video, what I see is mostly the stupidity of a sheep, right? Right, I mean, it's just stupid. But what we see in this passage is not that we're kind of just dumb sinful, like we just bop our way into sin, but actually that we're disobedient. That's the second description of God's people is disobedient. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. Verse 17, they refused to obey. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey. They stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law. This is not just stumbling into sin. This is 
willfully not doing what God says. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Right? It, it, would would the, the kid that's pulling that sheep out, would he, would he be loving to that sheep to go, hey, how about you not do this again? Yeah. And he goes again. And that's what we're like. We willfully disobey God. We're also, it says, presumptuous. Presumptuous. I thought this was such an interesting word. Uh, verse 16, but they and their fathers acted presumptuously. It says it again in verse 29. Yet they acted presumptuously. I had to kind of look that one up and go, what does that word mean exactly? Here's what presumptuous means. It means rude, inappropriate, showing little respect for others by doing the things you have no right to do. Right? When someone's acting presumptuously, you sort of imagine them coming in with their chest out. Like, I'm disobedient. What are you going to do about it? That's the idea. I'm going to go where I don't belong. I'm going to act like I have the right and the prerogative to things that I have no right for. I'm going to imagine I'm better than I am. This is not that we just disobey God. We do it defiantly. We do it presumptuously. What are you going to do, God? We're stiff-necked, it says in verses 16 and 17 and 29. They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks. You performed many wonders and signs among them, but they stiffened their necks. It's this idea of, of I'm going to be hard-hearted. I'm going to be stiff-necked. I'm not going to turn the direction that you want me to go. One commentator said this, throughout this miraculous pilgrimage of the Exodus, they lacked nothing and appreciated nothing. That's us. We lack nothing and we appreciate nothing. We're stiff-necked. Why were they stiff-necked? Well, because they were idolatrous. That's verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. What did they do? The people of Israel made an idol. God had rescued them. God had delivered them. They had seen what God did to nations that are consumed with idolatry, which is what Egypt was. God lets them out of that. And, and they go, you know what? Let's make an idol. This calf, the, the Lord is this calf. What's a calf? It's a cow. Why were they stiff-necked? Because you become like what you worship. And cows are stiff-necked. Not real agile, those cows. And we're idolatrous. For us, it looks different, right? I don't know anyone that has a golden calf in their house. But we worship ourselves. We worship our autonomy. Again, you don't bow down to it. You don't make sacrifices. But like, when you're talking about what are you worshiping, what are you living for? What are you living for? How do you feel when someone says you can't do that? What do you mean? Why? Because we worship our autonomy, our freedom, our power, our control. We worship our security. We worship approval of other people. We worship pleasure. Those are the things we give our lives to. We say, God, I love you. God, I'm for you. God, I only want to worship you. But then actually at a functional level, our hearts are really drawing after something else. If I have that, then I'll be okay. We're idolatrous. This is blasphemous. It says that in verse 18. They'd committed great blasphemies. Verse 26, uh, they committed great blasphemies. It's this picture of speaking against God with contempt, of kind of worshiping him on Sunday, and then the rest of the week just being dismissive of him. 
They're rebellious, it says in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, right? Oftentimes, uh, when we talk about the story of the Bible, we'll say that the story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? God created everything. Adam and Eve fell into sin. God sent Jesus to uh, create redemption, and he's going to come back to make all things new. I don't have a problem with that at all, but a more accurate thing would not be to call it creation, fall, but creation rebellion. Adam and Eve didn't trip into sin. They rebelled. So do we. They disregard God's word. That's the eighth thing. Verse 26 has such an interesting picture of this. It says, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind, your ba- behind their back. There's other verses here that describe they're just kind of ignoring God's word. But I, I like this picture of casting God's word behind its back. It's, it's literally, it's this word in Hebrew that means to eject or to dispose of, right? It's like I have a razor and uh, after every few weeks or however often I have to use it, I eject the cartridge into the trash, off it goes, right? This is, this is what you do with tags on clothes, eject. This is what you do with your gum, right? You're, you're chewing gum, that's kind of lost its flavor, roll down the window, whoosh. That's what God's people do to God's word. Arnold preached a beautiful sermon last week about the beauty of God's word, the need for God's word. Did it stir our hearts last week? Were we in God's word way more last week than the week before? No, we weren't probably most of us. Why? Because we cast God's word aside. I got news to read. I got social media to follow. I got news and cable to watch. I got stuff to do. Yeah, 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 I believe God's word. Do you? Do we? The ninth, we are evil, God's people are, and wicked. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. This is the same Hebrew word that for some reason is translated in verse 35 as wicked. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Get this. We're not talking about the people out there. We're talking about us. There's something about the word evil. Hey, hey, hey. I'm not perfect but I'm not evil. Well, God's word says, yes, we are. We, the people of God, manipulate. We say cruel things. We have affairs. We abort babies. We, the people of God, have sex outside of marriage. We deceive. We have racial prejudices. We yell at our kids. We get drunk and high. We watch porn. We gossip. We slander. We buy money we don't have on things we don't need. Not out there. In here. We do it. It's all evil. And we're not immune. 
And we will not experience deep renewal until we get honest about who we are when we're not walking in the power of the Spirit. So we got three options. First option, some of you I know are sitting there thinking, well, not me. Not me. And uh, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, which we'll return to here in a few weeks, uh, he also wrote a letter to a number of churches. And in that letter, he says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you say, not me? Well, you're just deceived. You're deceived. Now, listen, I'm not saying you're as bad as you could be. You could be way worse. But without Christ, you're as bad off as you could be. And if you say we have no sin, we deceive, you deceive yourself. So that's one option, it's not me. The second option is uh, I'll fix this. And on behalf of this passage, I just want to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll fix this. Yeah. Yeah, you won't. Because that's what this whole chapter is. God will do better. God, I'll try harder. God, just give me another chance. God, I'll do it. This time will be different. Here's a third option. I confess. I confess. In that same book of 1 John, it says the verse that Reese quoted earlier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. If, if we confess, if we agree with God that we are as bad as he says we are, that we are as in need of him as he says we are, if we confess, then what? He is sitting there at the bedside waiting for us to come out from under the blanket and confess. And when we do, here's what it says. He is faithful. That's what we saw a full screen of, his faithfulness and his goodness and his blessing and his kindness and his mercy. He is faithful. And then this word is astounding. And he is just, just. You go, that's the last thing I want if I admit my sin is justice. Well, why is he just to forgive of us our sin? Because if we are in Christ, then our sins have been paid for by Christ. And it would be wrong of God. It would be cruel of God. It would be evil of God to punish us for sins that have already fallen on him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Oh, it gets better. And to cleanse us from unrighteousness. To cleanse us. Not that we ever stop sinning, but that our consciences get a little bit a little bit less time that it takes for us to confess, a little bit less that it takes for us to go, oh yeah, I'm wrong. A little bit easier it is for me to say to my kids, I was wrong. Because he's cleansing me and he's cleansing you and he's cleansing us. This is what Jesus gives us. This is why we have a hope that the people of Nehemiah could only look forward to. We look back to it. And we say, we do confess our sins. We do admit our need. We do surrender all that we have to Jesus. Because that is the place we will find forgiveness and life, cleansing and joy. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, have mercy on us, sinners. Because as I told you this morning, I, I don't stand here better than a single person in this room. And I need mercy. We need mercy. And God, thank you that you promised to give it to us because of Christ. As we remember and worship him, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and joy. God, in the areas where we haven't come clean yet, I pray that this would be a day of repentance and confession, cleansing and renewal. I pray it in Christ's name, amen.